Thank you, choir. It's my privilege to introduce to you again our speaker from this morning. He spoke already in our Adult Bible Fellowship Hour and is now be speaking for our morning services. Dr. Patrick Odell is the president of Baptist Mid-Missions, and this church has had a long storied history of connectivity to Baptist Mid-Missions going all the way back to our foundations. In fact, going even all the way back to some of our founding members, if you think about it. One of the founding missionaries, or one of the ones that was most influential in some of their founding days, was a man by the name of Dr. Chick Watkins. Dr. Chick Watkins was the man who was preaching when two people that were very foundational, one that you've already seen, and one who started, helped start and plant our church, were called in the ministry. Chick Watkins was the pastor and preacher when, doctor, when uh, Pastor Al Knipfer and Linda committed their lives to the Lord and was very influential in their own lives and calling them into the missions field, eventually back to training in the ministry, and then back here. And Pastor Al, of course, is sitting over there and was one of our charter members of our ministry. We have eternal gratitude for Pastor Al and Lindo's influence in our own ministry. And of course, Chick Watkins, a Baptist mid-missions veteran hero of the faith of yesteryear. And our own Paul and Susan Van Lowe were also called into the ministry through, in part, the preaching ministry of Chick Watkins. That brings us to Baptist mid-missions. Pastor Paul and Susan were for years Baptist mid-missions missionaries, or their missions board was Baptist mid-missions, as well as Marilyn McLean was a Baptist mid-missions missionary. And our ministry supports several Baptist mid-missions missionaries, including the children of Chick Watkins. So it kind of all comes full circle to where we are today. I have not until this morning had the privilege of in person meeting Dr. Patrick Odell, though before I invited him to speak, I listened to a lot of his messages. And uh, I was privileged to get to be blessed even through audio listening to some of his messages that he's preached at other ministries and uh, getting to know his ministry well. And we're so thankful to have him and his wife with us. And we trust that you'll be able to be part of the various things that Pastor Aaron already mentioned that he'll be speaking out during this week, but first of all, he's here this morning, so give him your attention as he comes. Dr. Odell, I'll leave this clicker for you right here, but or I'll give it to you right now. Boy, uh, you're going to give it to his wife. That's Now you know who's really preaching this morning, because whoever holds the clicker and whoever controls the microphone has all the power for the pulpit. No, we're so glad for you to speak this morning. Thank you, Dr. Odell. Yeah, thank, thank you so much, Pastor Caleb. Appreciate the warm, warm welcome and all the connections that Faith Baptist has uh, with Baptist Admissions, the, uh, the Chick Watkins story especially. Um, I never had the privilege of, of meeting Chick Watkins. He had gone to be with the Lord. And, but, but around Baptist Admissions, he's kind of legendary, as well as the Reiners, Harold Reiner, uh, kind of legendary as well. And one of the things that I've heard about Chick Watkins is this, that Baptist Admissions would always have more missionaries the year after Chick Watkins went on furlough because it seemed like almost every other church that he went, went to and preached about missions in, somebody was called to missions as a result of his passion and his burden. And so it was one of those things where maybe we should have never let him go back to Africa. Maybe we should have just kept him here preaching in churches because God used him in great ways. But we know that God used him in great ways in Africa as well. And so we're very thankful for his ministry over the years and many others that have followed in his footsteps and have faithfully preached the word of God, those that started this church and many other churches like that. So we're grateful to partner with Faith Baptist and to be here today. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit surprised, Pastor Caleb, that you listened to my messages online and you still invited me, brother. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreci I'm sure that was a great deal of prayer time for you to discern whether or not to still do that. But uh, 
appreciate the opportunity of being with you. Uh, I, I would just very quickly introduce you to my family. I did this in Sunday school a little more extensively, but this is my wife of 32 years, my sweetheart of over 35 years. I mentioned that we met in a little Baptist church when we were just a couple of kids, and the Lord blessed us with a wonderful marriage, wonderful family. Our kids are serving all over the place, including in Alaska, as well as Minneapolis, Ohio, and Iowa. And so there's a glimpse of the fam and then these two little sweethearts of ours that we'll get to see here in a few weeks. Those are our grandbabies. They call me Papa, and Papa gets to hold them in a couple of weeks, so that'll be awesome. We're so thankful for, for technology. We, we FaceTime with them all the time, and uh, occasionally they FaceTime without their parents' permission. <laughs> we, had, we had one of those that, that all of a sudden, uh, Emery, the oldest, is on the line, and she's looking at me, and she goes, Oops, Papa, oops, Papa, I wasn't supposed to do this, bye. <laughs> and she, she turns, off, turns it off, and so that was the end of that uh, conversation. So we're thankful that even though they live in Alaska, that we connect with them on a regular basis in that way. I want to I also then this morning, I mentioned my family, I want to mention kind of a little bit of my growing up because it kind of segues into what I want to share with you this morning. And let me just say, I know I'm in Florida, okay? I know I'm in Florida, but I'm going to kind of transport you to the Midwest a little bit. So I met my wife in, in Minnesota as a teenager, but I actually grew up in Nebraska. How many of you have ever been to Nebraska, that fine and beautiful state? Go big red. Go big, wow, somebody actually knows that line. That's, that's significant. Go big red. Uh, those of you that have been to Nebraska, were you impressed? No. <laughs> Thanks for being honest. That's the typical response. What's to be impressed with, right? All it is is corn and cows, right? Corn and cows, corn and cows, and more corn and cows. So that was my growing up. I lived on a remote gravel road uh, 15 miles from, from the closest town. Our address was simply Rural Route 3, West Point, Nebraska, 68788. And you knew where you lived, the neighbors knew where you lived, and the postal carrier knew where you lived, but you didn't have an address beyond that. And so that was my, my heritage, and I grew up uh, around family farms. My dad didn't farm, but we had a rel- lot of relatives, especially on my mom's side. My mom's maiden name was Anderson, and so there were all these Swedish immigrants that had come to America to start farms there in rural Nebraska, and most of them were related to me. But even though we didn't farm, we had a little acreage. We lived on a little mini farm. And so it wasn't too long into us living there that my dad decided to rebuild the tractor that looks just like this. It was a 19, late 1940s, mid to late 1940s, John Deere B. Some of you like the color green. I can tell by the thumbs up I'm seeing out there. And so I remember dad you know, having that tractor and, and thinking as a little boy, I wonder how old I will have to be before I get to drive the tractor. Every little boy growing up on the farm wants to get to drive the tractor solo, okay? It's one thing to sit on your daddy's lap. It's another thing to get to do that solo. So anybody want to guess here how old I was before I got to drive the tractor all by myself? Any of you little kids out there or adults? Whoa, anywhere from five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's like an auctioneer here. (laughs) You know, I was nine, okay? I was nine years old when I got to drive that tractor. Those had hand clutch, so that made it a little bit easier. The legs didn't have to be quite so long, and the Nebraska's flat, so the brakes are unimportant. Um, (laughs) And so when I was nine years old, I got to drive that tractor. But part of my aspiration as a kid was this. Not only did I want to drive the tractor, but I, I remember thinking, I wonder how old I will have to be before I get to drive the combine. If you know anything about farming, the combine is the largest piece of equipment on the farm. I I saw a new one of these. I went to a county fair in Ohio. I saw a brand new one of these combines. You know how much it ran, how much the price tag was? $780,000 without the head. That was another $100,000 plus. So if you were to put the bean head, the corn head, and everything together, it's a million dollars. 
sitting there in that, in that combine. It's amazing what the price tag is for one of those large pieces of equipment that they use to harvest. And so I remember thinking, how old will I be before I get to drive a combine, to operate a combine? Anybody want to guess how old I was before that happened? 13, 16. No, I was in my 30s. Are you kidding? <laughs> I mean, who's going who's gonna to trust a kid with three quarters of a million dollars, right? And so I, I was actually pastoring in northern Iowa in a rural community. It was my first senior pastorate, and I was pastoring there when finally one of the farmers was brave enough to allow me to drive to operate his, uh, you know, whatever, however much money his was worth, uh, almost million dollar piece of equipment. And, and part of that was, was this, is that even as a kid growing up and aspiring to, to get to drive the, the little John Deere B, and then as a teenager and aspiring to get to, to run the combine, part of what was going on in my mind was simply this. I wanted to get involved. I wanted to get involved, especially in the most exciting time of the year, because the most exciting time on the, of the year on the farm is what? It's the harvest. That's right. I wanted to get involved in the harvest. I didn't want to just sit on the sidelines. I wanted to be a part of what was going on in the farm in rural, in that case, it was Nebraska, or later on, was not, when I was pastoring, it was rural Iowa. I wanted to be involved in the harvest. And it's that same kind of theme or motif that Jesus uses in our passage of Scripture this morning about our involvement in the worldwide harvest of souls, of reaching people for Jesus Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, and I want us to focus our attention this morning on a familiar passage of Scripture that reminds us of that very idea of getting involved in the harvest or helping in the harvest. Matthew chapter 9 begins, or, or this portion of Scripture begins in verse 38, and we'll read down through verse uh, verse, excuse me, verse 35 to verse 38 of Matthew chapter 9. Beginning reading in verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so what is it that this passage of Scripture is teaching? The big idea is simply this, that God wants us to get involved in the worldwide harvest of souls. Just as that little boy wanted to get involved in the harvest and drive the tractor or drive the big combine, every one of us who are believers in Jesus Christ ought to want to get involved in the worldwide harvest of souls. And so there are three things that are, that are taught in this passage of Scripture in relationship to that, three aspects. The first one I would point out to you is found in verses 36 and 37, and that is the size of the harvest. The size of the harvest. It's alluded to in verse 36 when it says this, when Jesus saw the multitudes, there were thousands of people that were thronging from the cities and villages coming out to hear and to see Jesus as he was both teaching and preaching and healing and even at times kind of putting the religious leaders in their place. Thousands of people came to watch him, came to listen, came to see Jesus Christ. But very specifically, the text goes on to say it this way, when it says this in verse 37, that he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plenteous, or it is, it is plentiful. And so the harvest is spoken of in terms of its size. Now the text doesn't specifically say this, but part of what has to go through your mind is this, as you read the word of God is, why is Jesus making a big deal of that? Why is it that Jesus is pointing out the fact that there's a big harvest? 
I think there are at least two implications, and you can take that from farm culture as well as from even, even in Scripture and what the rest of Scripture says in relationship to farming. And so the two implications, I think, are these. Number one, that when you think about the size of the harvest being huge, that ought to stir within the heart of, of harvesters a spirit of excitement. A spirit of excitement. Because, after all, there's no better time of the year on the farm than the fall. Because it's harvest time. And the bigger the crop, what? <laughs> the more likely you're actually to make money. You realize that on the farm, if the crop's not very large, then you probably lose money that year. And so the size of the harvest ought, ought to create a spirit of excitement in, in the heart of the farmer, but also in the heart of the believer. When I think of this, I, there's another word I would associate with this spirit of excitement, and that's the word opportunity. The bigger the harvest, the greater the opportunities. Maybe we ought to think of it this way. If you get involved in harvest ministry, there will never be a lack of work because there will never be a lack of souls. There will always be people around you who need the gospel of Christ and need Jesus Christ. There will always be people to reach. And so as we think about the size of the harvest, it ought to stir a spirit of excitement. But secondly, I think the second implication of the size of the harvest is this, and that is that there ought to be a sense of urgency a sense of urgency, especially when there's a large crop. After all, what is it like on the farm in the fall? It's all hands on deck. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I was amazed by when I was pastoring in north central Iowa, which is flat and great big huge farms, was this, that, that, that three generations of, of, of farmers from kids on up to grandpa were out there getting it done. Sometimes you would watch a little kid driving a $200,000 four-wheel drive tractor because everybody had to get involved in order to get the crop in the bin before what? But before winter, right? I know, you guys in Florida, it's a little different down here, right? <laughs> right? You don't know what I'm talking about. I mentioned this in the, in the, in the Sunday School Hour that there's this four-letter word called S-N-O-W, right? That comes to up north. That's why you're here, so you don't have to worry about that four-letter word anymore. But up there, they have to worry about that because the reality of the matter is, is this, is the, the harvest, the crops need to all be in the bin before the snow starts to fly because you don't want to be out there harvesting when the snow's flying. I had an opportunity to help my brother-in-law who, whose farm's a pretty sizable farm in southeastern Minnesota and he didn't get the crop in the bin before the snow started flying and it's Minnesota. And so we were out there trying to, with his combine, get the harvest in and it was a disaster. Those combines were not made to have snow in the middle of them when the corn's going through it. And so everything was plugging up, and he was frustrated. It was just, it, you need to get that done before the snow flies. And so the larger the crop, the more the reality is, is that we're going to have to work long and hard hours in order to get the crop in. When I was pastoring in northern Iowa, literally there were places where there were million, uh, millions of bushels of corn just out on the ground because of the huge harvest in good years, and really good years. And so... When it comes time to harvest, everybody does everything they can do to get the crop in the bin. One family in particular was kind of an illustration of this in, in my church there in northern Iowa, the Keller family. Uh, they were three-generation family farms. We had grandpa out there and, and then his two sons and then all of their boys. And, and usually the wives were involved in another way, in some way or another. And so imagine they, they roll up in, in one of these great big combines and they open up a very large 160-acre field, and they would actually use two combines. They would always come up with two combines. And once those two combines started into that field, they never stopped, okay? Now, growing up in Nebraska, we stopped for coffee all the time. We stopped for lunch all the time. We stopped just to talk all the time. 
Not this family. They, they farmed a lot of acres. They had a job to do, and so they didn't stop. They actually, once they opened that field, those combines would not, the wheels would not stop turning other than to turn around at the end of the field, and that was it. So they would do, as you can see depicted in this picture here, they would, they would what they call catch on the run, which means this, that that combine, because it never stopped to unload, would literally unload on the move. So it's still harvesting. It's still making its way, in this case, through the bean field. And, and beans are coming out the auger into this, into this grain cart, they call that. And that grain cart's getting filled up, and he'll completely empty out the, the hopper of the combine on the run, not stopping, into that grain cart. That grain cart will go to the other combine that's doing the exact same thing across the field. And when that, when that grain cart gets full, which is huge, that will then go to the two or three semis that are lined up on the gravel road. And there'll be people that'll be driving those two or three semis from there back to the farm place where there's this ginormous bin, and they'll unload those semis into this ginormous bin and everything will just keep moving in this beautiful synchrony, and it never stops. I mean, they were like the, the, the epitome of efficiency, because they had a job to do because of what? Winter was coming. There was a sense of urgency. I'm going to ask you this morning, as you think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the spread of the gospel, and the evangelization of souls in North America and across the world, is that spirit of, of, of urgency or sense of urgency, is that what you see in the churches today? I mean, I don't, honestly. I see instead lackadaisical Christians that are just kind of taking life easy, and if they get to witness every now and then, okay, maybe so. But no sense of urgency of, we have a job to do. Or, or a sense of urgency that winter is coming. I mean, just, just think about it. Are things getting better? I mean, is it getting better in the United States? Or are things looking worse? Does it look like the cold is coming, Right? It does, does it not? So if there's ever been a time for us to reach souls for Jesus Christ, it is now. And yet, 80% of churches in America today have plateaued or in decline. And out of those, that the 20% that are growing in America today, only 1% are growing because of conversion growth. So the 20% that are growing are simply swapping sheep with other churches. And only 1% are reaching souls for Christ. Where's the sense of urgency to reach the lost for Christ? The size of the harvest demands a spirit of excitement and a sense of urgency. Do you have that? Is that in your heart, in your soul today, when you hear the words of Jesus, when he says the harvest is plenteous? Size of the harvest. Notice then, secondly, the shortage of the workers. The shortage of the workers... Verse 37 goes on to put it this way when it says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are what? They're few. There weren't enough workers in Jesus' day, and the need is even greater today. And let me just say, I think it's important for us to understand this is not just a, a missions issue, okay? There's a tendency for all, us always to connect this text with missions, but the reality of the matter is this. God wants every Christian to be a harvest laborer. Every follower of Jesus Christ ought to be actively participating in their harvest field. That may be your neighborhood. That may be your family. That may be your workplace. That may be other places where you meet lost people, right? Every Christian ought to be involved in their harvest field. So it's not exclusively when we speak of the shortage of labor as a missions issue. 
But I think the need is punctuated, okay? The need is punctuated both in, in terms of the shortage of missionaries as well as even in the shortage of pastors. I don't know if you realize that both of those are very real and significant needs in America today. There are churches right now that are going two, three, and even four years without finding a pastor, and many churches that don't know that they'll ever, they'll ever call a new pastor because there's a shortage of pastors. One of my good friends is the president of a Bible college, and one of the things that he has said is that every year near graduation time, they get all these requests for churches that say, do you have a new young graduate that would come be our pastor? And they get almost 10 times as many requests as they have young men to fill those, those requests. And so there's a shortage of, of local church people involved in the harvest. There's a shortage of pastors, but there's also a shortage of missionaries. Almost every agency that I know of is facing the challenge of more missionaries retiring than missionaries going to the field. Now, I know there are some exceptions and maybe some newer and, and smaller mission agencies that maybe can show numbers that are different than that. But for the most part, that's, that's true across the board. One larger, and this would be you know, distinct from us as independent Baptists, but one larger evangelical mission agency president put it this way, that he and his organization expects a 5% annual decline of the number of missionaries with their organization for the foreseeable future. Decline of 5% per year for the foreseeable future. And so as I, as I read this text, as I think about our situation in, in America today, there are questions that go through my mind. If questions like, if the need is so great, and there were so many who went into ministry in the past, what is wrong? Right? You can't help but ask honest questions like that. What is wrong? Is God just calling fewer people to ministry? I mean, is it that God just says, you know what? Gospel's not that important. Worldwide evangelism is not that important. Pastoral ministry is not that important. Reaching souls is not that important. Is that, is that what's really going on? No. No. Or is it that fewer people are listening? That fewer people are listening to the call? Let me ask a couple of questions this morning that are kind of application questions as we think about the shortage of, of workers. The first question is simply this. Why is the need even greater today? Why is the need even greater today? And, and this, this, the list of answers probably could probably be, be a lot longer than this. But let me give you three uh, uh, answers that the Lord's laid on my heart. Number one is... Uh, there are a lack of surrendered believers. Fewer believers are willing to surrender and say, Lord, I'll, I'll go, I'll do, I'll be whatever you want me to go and, and do and, and be. I mean, we sang songs about it this morning. Songs that, that I remember singing when I was a teenager that I meant with all my heart when I said to God, I'm yours. Send me now, Lord Jesus, send me. Take me, use me. I, I'm yours. And yet I would ask you this morning, have you said that to the Lord? Romans 12.1 still says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is a reasonable service. You know what that means? Every Christian is called to a life of surrender. Does that mean every Christian is going to be a foreign missionary? No. But every Christian is called to say, God, I am yours. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll, I'll be, I'll go, whatever, Lord. I'm yours. I am giving myself wholly to you, to use for your glory. And then I can't help, help but wonder if there aren't many Christians that have said, okay, God, I'll, I'll, I'll do that, but. But I don't want to give this up, and I don't want to give that up, and I don't want to do this, and I don't want to do that. Let me ask you this morning, is that surrender? It's not surrender, is it? When we put conditions on our surrender to God, it is not surrender. True surrender to the will of God is, is, is abandonment. 
of all of my plans, abandonment of all the things that I would hang on to, and it's total abandonment to the will of God. God, I'm yours. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Perhaps this morning there are some here that God has been laying it on your heart to say yes to Him in relationship to surrender. And today He wants you to surrender and say, I'm yours, Lord. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And so surrender, I think, is an issue. Number two, wrong parental goals. Wrong parental goals. Woodrow Kroll wrote a, a book a number of years ago entitled The Vanishing Ministry in the 21st Century. The Vanishing Ministry in the 21st Century. And what he basically did was predict what we're facing today. He saw the trends. He saw what was happening in the American church. And he said, this is where we're headed. There'll come a day when there's a shortage of pastors. There'll come a day when there's a shortage of missionaries. There'll come a day when, when we're not reaching souls for Christ. And, and he said, this is why. And he proposed a number of reasons and then solutions but one of them was this. One of them was this whole idea of wrong parental goals. And he said this about, about this. He said, we give our children to the Lord at baby dedication and then we take them back at graduation. And he cited a typical career talk with a dad. Where the typical career talk with the average dad goes something like this. You know, you're going to graduate from high school. I want you to go to college so you can get a good job so you can make money. And it might not have been college. Maybe it was learn a trade or going to this or going to that. But so the bottom line was that so that you have a good life and you make money. And then that's the primary conversation that typically goes on in a Christian home between a father and a son or father and daughter, mother, mother, son, mother, daughter. Instead of something more like this, you know, I want you to serve God in whatever capacity he wants you to serve. Amen. You know, if that means being a mechanic, be a mechanic for the glory of God. If that means being an engineer, be an engineer for the glory of God. If that means being a pilot, be a pilot for the glory of God. Whatever it is, I just want you to, to, to surrender your life to Him. And if God wants, so chooses to send you across the planet, me as your father or your mother, I would be thrilled. I would want you to do that. So consider that. Woodrow Kroll goes on to say the following about, about parents and the whole decision of their children and careers and those types of choices. He says, quote, Many parents perceive that if they commit their children to God, He will cruelly force them to live in poverty and deprivation all of their lives in some far-off, bug-infested jungle. Or worse, they won't experience the glamour of being sent to the mission field, but will experience the horror of being tucked away as a pastor and wife in a little church in a no-name town best described as 10 miles south of resumed speed. But by the way, when I pastored in northern Iowa, that's kind of where I lived. I, I affectionately refer to that little, little town in north central Iowa as our one and a half stoplight town. Because that's all it was. Only half a stoplight because there was one literal stoplight there on Main Street, okay? And the town square, if you can kind of visualize the rural Iowa look, town square, one stoplight there. And then we had another stoplight that was a crosswalk stoplight, okay? Only if somebody happened to want to cross the street was it another, another stoplight town. And that's, that's where I pastored. And that's where I loved serving Jesus Christ. And that's where God used us for nine years to see people come to Christ and, and to build His church and to accomplish what He wanted to accomplish in and through us. And I would hope that every single parent or grandparent in this room would be thrilled if someplace like that was the call of God in your child or grandchild's life. Or someplace that is a far-off uh, bug-infested jungle, if that's where God wants them or in some metropolitan major city of the world, if that's where God wants them. That you would want them to serve in whatever capacity God wants them to serve in. 
instead of saying, just make a choice that makes you money. Wrong parental goals. And that really kind of leads to the third one because the third one is this, the seduction of materialism. We have developed such a taste for material things that the ideas of sacrifice and self-denial have almost become repugnant to us as American Christians. And it's the, the influence of the culture that's done this. Where we want more, we want better, we want bigger, we want stuff. And we want it now. And so the idea of packing, of selling all that stuff and then packing what you have left in three suitcases and shipping it across the world may be absolutely the farthest thing from your mind is something horrible that you couldn't accept. The American church reeks of materialism and it's evidenced both by our living and our giving and perhaps that is part of the problem. Perhaps that is why there are fewer that are willing to say yes to the call of God to ministry. So that's the, kind of the negative side. Let me, let me talk a little bit about the application on the positive side. Why is the need even greater? There are three reasons. Let me talk about where is the need the greatest. If, if there's a shortage of workers, where, would those, where, where should those workers go? Okay? Where, where, God, where might God be pleased to send some of those workers uh, around the world? Well, first of all, to the metropolitan areas of the world. Uh, it, it's hard to fathom the size of cities in the world today. If you've not been to a major metropolitan area outside of the United States, I realize we have our fair share of large metro areas in the States, but if you've not been to one in a foreign nation, it's just hard to even imagine that. You've been there. <laughs> you've been, I'm sure, to Sao Paulo and to some of those mega cities of the world. And, and I refer to these metropolitan areas because if you, were to, if you were to right now fact check me, don't get on your phones and start doing that, okay? Uh, you would come up with, with smaller numbers because typically most of the numbers based on the cities are within the boundaries of the city itself, okay? Versus what I'm talking about is the metropolitan, the urban sprawl. So we were in Sao Paulo um, back in February and, and literally we, we left the boundaries in Sao Paulo and then just kept driving for another two hours <laughs> after we left, quote-unquote, Sao Paulo, the, the city, and so I speak of the metropolitan areas of the world, not just the metro itself. And, and realize this, the top five metropolitan areas in the world average 27 million souls. That's one city. That's one metropolitan area. 27 million souls. The top five. When we were in Sao Paulo this last, this last winter, um, our, our guest, the Santos, took us out and took us to a restaurant and uh, they wanted us to see uh, the city from, from this restaurant that was up on a higher floor. And so we got to see the city. And, and one of the things we noticed about Sao Paulo is that, is that there were high-rise apartments as far as the eye could see. I mean, not just occasional. Like, you know, we have apartment buildings and clusters and things like that. But, I mean, just as far as the eye could see, there were all these high-rise apartment buildings. And I, and I said to Dave, I said, so, you know, those look, those, those look huge and there's lots of them. So how many people live in just one of those, just one of those buildings? He says, oh, about 5,000. 5,000, it's no wonder they can pack so many people in, in, in a city when, when you're talking about one building housing 5,000 people. And so, so that could be re repeated all over the world today where there are metropolitan areas where, where the opportunity for evangelism and church planting is, is just incredible. The cities of the world need the gospel. The, the second area is creative access uh, nations. We used to refer to these as restricted access nations. The reality of the matter is this. Many nations in the world that are closed to missionaries are open with some creativity. And so there are ways to get in. It was asked in Sunday school. Great question in Sunday school in relationship to this. 
Um, and that there are nations that are not easy for missionaries to enter. Typically, they're Muslim, they're Hindu, they're communist, or some combination of, of some of those, or, or more than one of those in some cases. And so you can't go there with the typical uh, religious worker's visa. That normal visa would be, if I were to go to a South American country, it would be a religious worker's visa. You can't go there with that. Tourist visa only gets you there short term, so you can't go there with that. So you have to have some other kind of visa in order to get into these creative access nations. And so the Lord's opening doors through business. We talked about that a little bit in Sunday school, where, where maybe you could go in to be a part of a team, and you're not even a classic missionary, but you can do your IT job that you have back here in America, and you can do that job overseas on a computer, but be part of a missions team. Or you can conduct business. We have a missionary, or up till recently, we had a missionary on a, on a, on a Muslim island that was 99.9% Muslim. Imagine that. And he owned a fitness center. As that was the only way he could get into that island. That was the only way he could stay on that island. And so he had a fitness center. And guess where all of his contacts for evangelism came from? All the clients. They'd have them over to their home. They'd have dinner with them. One, one, one of them approached them when they invited them to dinner. They said, and, and this is a Muslim person, and can you tell us about Jesus? We hear you have people in your home and you tell them about Jesus. We don't know anything about Jesus. And so they've seen people come to Christ as a result of, of that ministry. So there are opportunities like that around the world. Medicine is a huge one. Nurses, doctors, and others in hospital administration that could serve the Lord in places where we can't get in there except for a hospital. One of those creative access nations is in Asia. And we were told when we started the, me the medical ministry, you can start this medical ministry, but you'll never have a Baptist church in our city. There will never be a Baptist church in our city. Now, decades later, there's a church that seats 1,000 people in their city, and it has started 16 daughter churches across the city and the region. All the fruit of a hospital. And, and, and the hospital is the key to that. They, wanna, they want to shut the hospital down. They would love, actually, they'd love to take it over and make it no longer be American. And so we're asking God to send another missionary doctor there because that is really key to the success of that hospital is another missionary doctor. The man that right now is running that hospital is approaching 70 years old. And the day will come when he has to retire. Now, if you were to ask him, he'd say he'd go till 90. But uh, the day will come when he'll have to retire and we need, we're asking God for more laborers and another missionary doctor and others to join in that ministry there, in that creative access nation. And there are places like that all around the world where, where God may use a, a business person or God may use someone teaching English or, or practicing medicine or other vocations to take the gospel of Christ to a creative access nation. But the laborers are few. Maybe God is laying it upon the heart of someone here to take whatever skill set you have and to take it across the world to be a part of reaching souls for Christ in a foreign culture where the gospel is not prevalent, where the gospel is still needed. The needs are great across the world. Will you be someone who satisfies that need of the, the shortage of workers? The size of the harvest, the shortage of workers, and then finally I would point out to you the solution. And the solution is prayer. The solution is prayer. Notice the way the text puts it here. In, uh, in verse 38, when it says this, Pray, therefore, the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I think it's interesting that Jesus here says to pray. At this point, he doesn't say go. At this point, he doesn't even say pray for souls to be saved. Now, we know there are other places in Scripture, and actually, if you were to read on into Mark, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 10, you'll find out Jesus sends them out, okay? 
But the first thing he has them do is pray. And I think it's significant the word even that Jesus uses here. There are four primary Greek words that are used in the Greek New Testament that are translated pray or praying or prayer. And the word very specifically that Jesus uses here is the word deamai. And, and I think the reason Jesus uses it is because of its focus. The word deamai emphasizes wanting something desperately. And wanting it so desperately because there's an urgent need, so you beg someone to provide it. In other words, it's not always translated pray. In different contexts, it's actually translated beg. So here's the idea of the word. Praying is wanting something desperately because of an urgent need, so you beg someone else to provide it. That's what Jesus is saying here. And that's illustrated by other passages of Scripture where the word oftentimes isn't translated pray. In some translations, it's even translated beg. And so we might lose track of what Jesus is saying here, and we might even lose track of the significance of the word in terms of the gravity of the word meaning to beg. Until we see passages like, and we won't take the time to turn there, but if you were to go to Luke chapter 5 and verse 12, you would read of the account of a leper who meets Jesus. And he wants to be healed. Imagine if you had leprosy, right? Literally where you're losing fingers and literally where you are ostracized from all society. You can't even go to the temple for worship. You can't spend time with your family because of your leprosy making you permanently unclean. Imagine that. And you encounter Jesus. Let me just ask you this morning, what would you do if you met Jesus and you had leprosy? You would beg Jesus to heal you, right? That's exactly what happens in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, and Jesus heals him. We have another account in Luke chapter 9. This time, it's the father of a demon-possessed boy. Again, put yourself in the shoes of the dad. Your son is demon-possessed, and as a result of that, he goes into convulsions, he foams at the mouth, and he harms himself. And you meet Jesus. You're the dad, you're the mom of a demon-possessed boy. What would you do? You would beg Jesus to heal your boy. And that's exactly the way the text describes it, in that the, the, the man begs Jesus to heal his boy, just like the leper begs Jesus to heal him. They both beg Jesus. And guess what word is used there? It's the same word that's used in Matthew 9, 38. Pray ye the Lord of the harvest. And so what he's saying is that, is that he wants us to beg him for more harvest laborers. He wants us to pray. When is the last time that you prayed like that? When is the last time you said, God, send more people that would take the gospel to more people? And yet that is what Jesus is commanding all of us to do. You know, I, I, again, I, I can't help but ask myself questions. Like I said earlier, why didn't Jesus at this point say, go? Why didn't Jesus say, pray, pray for souls? Well, the reality of the matter is, is, is this. We ha really haven't done anything until we have prayed. Or as I said earlier this morning, prayer can do anything that God can do. Why not pray for their salvation? Because it's prayer that often instead makes us the one who is praying the answer to our own prayers. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, when we pray as he commanded, we will see what he saw. We will feel what he felt. And we will do what he did. The best thing you can do to become a part of the harvest of souls is to begin praying and asking God to send workers. And while you are asking that question, of God, ask yourself this simple question. Am I an answer to my own prayers? Does God want me to be a harvest laborer? Does God want me to be a harvest laborer right here in this area? But does God also maybe want me to be a harvest laborer somewhere else around the world? Am I the answer to my own prayers? And honestly, folks, 
That's part of what God did in my heart to call me to Baptist Admissions. I had been praying this prayer on a regular basis for decades. Lord, send more laborers. Lord, send more laborers. Lord, send more laborers. And then God made it clear that he wanted to send me and wanted me to serve him outside of the pastorate and serve him with Baptist Admissions. And maybe God would do that kind of work in your heart, in your life. And that needs to be a priority for us personally, but it also needs to be a priority for this church. It needs to be a priority for every church. Harvest prayer should be both a personal priority and a church priority. Now, I, I didn't look to see if your church had a church prayer bulletin, okay? So I'm, I, I didn't spy on you ahead of time, right? But I would venture to say this. What, what does the average church bulletin primarily focus on? Church prayer bulletin or prayer list. What does it primarily focus on? <laughs> you said it pretty clearly there. Sick people. And is it wrong to pray for sick people? Absolutely not. There are at least a couple of instances in the Bible where that's mentioned. But what should be the primary focus of our prayer lives? Souls, right? Souls, people that need Christ. My fear is that Christians pray more about getting saints out of the hospital than sinners out of hell. And they pray more to the Lord of the hospital than to the Lord of the harvest. God wants us to pray, to beg the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers. Will you do that? Will you make that a priority in your church and in your life? Ask God to send the next missionary out of Faith Baptist Church. Ask God to raise up the next pastor out of Faith Baptist Church. And ask God to send all of you into your neighborhoods as harvest laborers in your workplaces, in your spheres of influence, to be harvest laborers, to reach people for Christ. Let me close with four things I think God wants us to do as a result of what we've learned from Scripture this morning. Application for each of us. Number one, ask God to give you a spirit of excitement and a sense of urgency that's fueled by a compassion for souls. I didn't go back to earlier in the text where earlier in the text it says that Jesus was moved with compassion. That may be the key of it all. It was, it was his compassion for souls that, that stirred him to reach people. Number two, surrender your life to God's will. Are you living a surrendered life where you know for certain that you are doing just, just exactly what God wants you to do? Is your life surrendered? Number three, encourage your kids and your grandkids to consider ministry. Not force them, but always be reminding them. What, wouldn't it be wonderful? That's kind of how I like to, to put it. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God wanted you to do this? Wouldn't it be wonderful if God wanted you to do that in terms of service for Him? And then finally, make praying for harvest workers a daily habit. I mentioned in Sunday school, uh, Pray 938. And what that is is simply this. It's an opportunity for you to become one of my prayer partners. One of my, my goal is 20,200 prayer partners who would simply say, I can pray every day for missionaries. And so what happens for me is this. My, my phone alarm, and I turned it off this morning. All right, my wife reminds me on a regular basis, but... My phone alarm is set for 9.38 in the morning and 9.38 at night. So last night, Ruth and I were at our hotel at 9.38, and we were kind of relaxing, and my, my phone alarm went off, and so we stopped watching football, and, and I said, let's, let's pray. And so we prayed. And the reason it's 9.38 is because Matthew 9.38 says, pray the Lord of the harvest. And so what I am inviting you to do is join me as a prayer partner. There's a sign-up sheet back there uh, on the table and there's a brochure that looks just like this Pray 938 that you're seeing on the screens. And that brochure will give you 30 days to pray in a different way each day for more harvest laborers. And I can't help but believe 
Is if we together, as the churches of Jesus Christ here in North America, begin to pray that way, that God will begin to hear our prayers. He'll begin to answer our prayers. And He'll begin to send more harvest laborers into a harvest field that desperately needs the gospel. Desperately needs Jesus Christ. Would you join me in praying in that way? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word today and the privilege it is to, to share it, to preach it here at Faith Baptist. We're grateful for this church is wonderful partnership with missionaries all over the world. But Lord, I would pray that you might send more right from this congregation. Maybe even this morning, there's somebody here that, that this morning is sensing the call of God in their lives and perhaps is even struggling with surrender. I pray that this morning that they would yield to your call and that they would say, yes, Lord, I'll, I'll be whatever you want me to be. I'll go wherever you want me to go and I'll do whatever you want me to do. I, I pray for believers to encourage their kids, and, and I pray that all of us would make this a, a prayer priority to beg you, the Lord of the harvest, to send more. We pray in Jesus' name.